So one of the more difficult passages in the Edexcel IGCSE anthology is the short story Night by Alice Munro. It comes in section two and therefore would be examined in paper two English language and I think would cause some problems for any student having to write an analysis of this passage, partly as much as anything else because of its length. And every time I, I teach it, which now is three or four years worth, I, I feel the need to explore it again for myself before I teach it. it it's a dense passage. Now, in terms of our podcast talk about this, you obviously would need a copy of the text in front of you. And I'm assuming that anybody listening to this will be in that position. I'm also assuming that the copy of the text you have is the copy found in the Edexcel anthology and any page references or line references that I give will relate to that version. So it's a very long passage particularly for something that you're going to write about in about 40 minutes. And I therefore spend quite a lot of time establishing, if you like, a framework into which my students can place events or thoughts that will facilitate their writing when under pressure. And generally what I've done, and I've done this year, is divided my text clearly into sections. So we have an exposition, lines 1 to 50. We have rising action, lines 50 to 90. We have a crisis, 90 to 111. Falling action, 112 to 163, and resolution, 163 to the end. And I think that these sections work perfectly well uh, and should be, can be used by students to allow them to explore the passage divided into its coherent structure, if you like, as a work of fiction, rather than thinking, gosh, this is long, where do I start? And I'll talk through it in this way. And so if we start with the exposition, we find, as we would expect, this setting and the contexts put in place. It's a semi-autobiographical piece and broadly linear in the telling, though Munro is able to hint at events to come by using foreshadowing from time to time. The setting is Canada, close enough to the end of the Second World War to make it worthy of comment. The war and gas rationing had changed all that. The family farm is isolated. And the combination of this and the harsh Canadian climate means that crises can be hard to deal with. Monroe recalls blizzards as accompanying all medical emergencies. It's unlikely, but it's also a neat piece of pathetic fallacy for all that. Indeed, as she establishes the event which is the catalyst for all which is explored in the piece, there is a blizzard. Hospital can only be reached using the neighbour's team, essentially placing 1950s Canada in the same position in terms of infrastructure, as that of a century earlier. The hospital removes her appendix. And at this point, there's a punctuation moment in the Edexcel version, suggesting a cut. The ellipsis here is not a dramatic uh, device. It's just an editorial device to show us that there's a cut. All goes well with the operation. And there's a brief digression about payment, which introduces the relative poverty of the family. Monroe is conversational in tone, so I lay. We're sort of being talked at as though by a friend. And there's little sense of what is about to be revealed. When her mother tells her about the growth, the significance of which is stressed by anadiplosis, there is still little urgency. The metaphor of the turkey's egg will become a euphemistic alternative for the tumour later in the passage. However, the single sentence paragraph at line 24 
might well alert us to the idea that all is far from over. This being written retrospectively, we know Munro to be alive and her writer's persona seems fairly blasé about the whole thing. Suppose it was benign or skillfully got rid of. And she can now pass it off without thought. We're not being prepared for the story which will emerge at this stage. Munro continues by describing a fairly normal family relationship of sibling squabbles and petty cruelties in the name of establishing precedents. The bedroom and the bunk beds again help us to see that this is not a financially comfortable upbringing, but it's far from abnormal. However, she hints at around line 133 at what will happen. In what seems like more basic information about that particular June, she lays this lovely little hook that nobody knew there was a thing the matter with me. And after a couple more cuts in the rising action, this is picked up and developed. And so in the rising action, we start to develop the story itself. We return to June as the central core of the tale, and Monroe begins to add detail. Rising and falling action can be made up of numerous steps, and the students should note these as they arrive. So here in our rising action, I've sort of counted a few off. We have step one, where at first there's a sense of ease, despite the foreshadowing of the mother's illness when Munro interpolates as yet into an otherwise positive comment about housework. We know there's a change coming. All is still relatively calm, chores and free time in order to recuperate. Yet within this, there are indications of the mental health issues which emerge. This uselessness and strangeness I felt is not explained at this stage, but the hook is clear. And we realize that information is being delivered slowly and taking its turn with snippets of narrative description more suited to a novel than a straight autobiography. At line 64, step two kicks in, and the conversation between us and the author develops further, so maybe we're being told. In this section, we learn of Monroe's trouble sleeping, at first delivered objectively with more comment about the family to prevent over-quick engagement with the deeply personal. Monroe begins to explore the issue of insomnia, brought on by what will seem to be a paranoia at some level. She addresses the reader directly at line 76, you might think, and in this section the narrative changes. The shift from explanatory prose to something more direct begins here, and is best shown in the fractured structure of lines 83 to 89. At this stage, Munro creates, via free indirect speech, the voice of her inner mind, which challenges her directly. So who do you think you are then? Her response, given in the form of dialogue, is only expressed indirectly. Yet the mind's comment, think again, is clear. Far from assuming the routine jeering is safe, she realises, or believes, that here is real menace in the idea that she is not herself. The danger of mental slippage is all too clear, and it's at this point that we begin the crisis. The, the short section at the apex of the tale. Monroe shows us the power of the mind to tell me to do things. A chain around thinking and thought is established in lines 96 to 103, ending in the anaphora of the thought. The first thought is hanging there, already symbolic of threat, if not specific action. And then the thought is formalized as the thought that I could strangle my little sister, whom I loved more than anybody in the world. Here, the little sister serves to increase the vulnerability of the infant and we're shown the real moral dilemma for the teenage Monroe. She seems to be split between love and the urge to do the worst. Again, strengthened by anathoplosis, Monroe admits the darkest secret 
an urge to murder, presumably brought on in some way by the awareness of her own brush with death. Readers will also recognize that she does not manage to do the worst. We know enough of her life story to know that she is not a child killer. From this point, the narrative begins what's known as the, the falling action, the almost tidying up of the action that will lead to some form of resolution or discovery of a new status quo. And in the first part of this falling action, Munro recounts the ways in which she countered the urges. She would remove herself from the scene at night. Here begins the descriptive passages around night fears, which seem almost gothic. The sections at lines 114 to 121 or 164 to 168 would not be out of place in novels such as A Woman in Black. Students should note the way in which longer descriptive sentences and emphasis on the need for silence increase tension and allow Monroe to move from autobiographical writing into something closer akin to fiction in this section. All is dark, well, it's night time, but symbolically this works on another level, perhaps offering a vision of her mental state. As the resolution begins, she will meet her father at dawn and we recognize the idea of hope returning to her in this comparison. Each morning she returns to bed, fell into her pillow and recovered. Step two of the falling action, Munro acknowledges the absurdity of her position, placing the word alone in a line at 144, but for describing how in the daytime the relationship was easy and typical, hammock swings with her sister after school, for example. She's also able to rationalise her sleeplessness as she looks back and realises that she spent much of the daytime asleep in the hammock while others were at school. And then in step three of the falling action, which will lead to the resolution, we move away from this rather peaceful interlude and the narrative returns to the night fears and walking, leading to the confrontation which will bring about the resolution of the story. And at this stage, for the resolution, Munro is surprised to meet her father. The narrative has a quality of a ghost story, I got a sense too late for me to change my mind. And yet the meeting is a positive one. Munro delays the direct recording of the conversation by describing her father in some detail. And she will return to this later. At this stage, we note that he's dressed for the day and that his behavior is strangely formal. Much is made of his greeting, good day, in a family where such small talk is often seen as superfluous. He's smoking and looking into town. And in later life, Monroe will recognise the significance of these small details. Within the narrative, they serve to delay the inevitable confrontation which she expects and which she has set up. So as they converse, punctuated by Monroe's commentary on the action, we realise that rather than a confrontation, her father's understated reaction is what she needs. Her silence has been imaginary and he's been aware of her nocturnal walks due to bad dreams. He even seems to be underwhelmed by the idea of the worst. His monosyllabic response, well, suggests a calmness which begins to transmit itself to her. He allows her to see that she's not abnormal, yet does not belittle her fears and seek to admonish her, or even worse, seek to blame her. And this leads Monroe to the single sentence which sums up, I think, the philosophy of the passage. People have thoughts they'd sooner not have in life seems a typically unemotional and calm response to a crisis, a response well suited to this loving but undemonstrative family. 
And at this point, so that we can sort of conclude the story and establish our way forward, Monroe moves into direct address and the form of the passage changes slightly. She speaks directly to the reader from line 237. And she asks the reader to help her here and is, you know, join her in considering the dichotomy between a father who beat her at times and expected her to lump it had she ever complained, and a father who got it just right on this occasion. This allows her to conclude with a reflection on his life, dress well to visit a bank to save his loan from being called in, or to visit some medical authority about his wife's illness. Who the impossible woman may be is not explored. His wife? Impossible as death is coming to her, is the charitable response, and I prefer this to the idea of a lover, impossible because of her father's sense of duty. Munro's never mind closes the question in her mind and in ours, and the crisis in her teenage years is over. <laughs>